want to invite you to take your copy of the Word of God, whether you've worshiped with us in person or online, and open with me to Mark 15, the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through verse 15, and then we'll unpack it together. So Mark 15, uh, if you're there, say I'm there. All right, here we go. Verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Father, we are thankful for the reading of your word. Lord, we pray for the hearing of your word, that faith comes from hearing. And we pray for the response to your word today. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Begrudgingly, I'll admit, the evidence is overwhelming. Tom Brady has played in 20% of all Super Bowls that have ever been played. <laughs> NBA star Steph Curry averages 43.3% on his three-point shooting. Brady has played in 48% of Super Bowls that have been played during his career. That means that when the next football season starts, it is more likely that Brady will play and make it to the Super Bowl than Steph Curry will make his next three-point shot. The Tampa Bay quarterback has been playing at a high level for a long time. Go all the way back to his first Super Bowls. Here are the companies that had commercials during that Super Bowl. Here's some of them. AOL. I think, I think they're still around. Blockbuster. I think they have one store left. Radio Shack. Circuit City. Sears. 
hot jobs, voice stream wireless, and gateway computers. Most of them don't even exist anymore. Brady outlasted them. So yes, begrudgingly, when it comes to playing quarterback, Brady is the greatest of all time. <laughs> I'll admit it, though it is quite deflating. Some of y'all may get that later. Remember deflate gate? <laughs> but God's love is never deflating. It's always inflating. In fact, Mark 15, you know, God says that he showed his love for us in this, that while we were his enemies, sinners, Christ died for us. And in and, and Mark 15, what we have unfolding for us, the scene of the suffering of Jesus. Now, we're just going to look at the first part of the chapter through verse 15 today, but here we see the demonstration of God's love, which is the greatest of all time. And that's what I want to speak to you on today. Sure, Brady may be the greatest quarterback, but God's love is the greatest of all time. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to consider these four responses to God's love that shoot out of this text like Cupid's arrow. And the first one, and I've worded all of them in the form of a question, but here's the first one. Is your response to Jesus, how you respond to Jesus, is it religiously motivated? Is it motivated by religion? This first group of people that we're introduced to, they responded to Jesus religiously. It was motivated by religion. Look at verse 1. It says very plainly, as soon as it was morning. That means ASAP. It means forthwith or straight away or immediately. They couldn't wait for it to be morning. And, and what happened the night before was a heinous crime of illegally putting Jesus on trial. In fact, it was a torchlight interrogation where the high priest asked Jesus the question, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, yes, I am. I am is what he said. And he said, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. You'll see him coming with the clouds. And, and, and it says that the high priest tore his robes and cried out, what further evidence do we need You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And everybody there condemned Jesus deserving of death. That was the night before this morning. So why are they still meeting? Why didn't they just take Jesus out and stone him on the spot? Why are they meeting the next morning? They sound like a bunch of Baptists. Why are they meeting again? I don't know if they met through the night into the morning. I don't know if they just reconvened in the morning. But why are they meeting in the morning? Several reasons. Number one, the trial that night was illegal. They had to do it during the day. They broke their own law. They broke their own rules. They broke their own regulations. They prohibited themselves from having a criminal case at nighttime. So they had to do it during the day. Secondly, they had Rome remove the power of the Jews of the Sanhedrin to execute anybody. So they couldn't execute him. And if they had, it would have been by stoning and not by crucifixion. So they could not. Their hands were literally tied. They could not stone him even if they wanted to. Thirdly, they had to come up with a plan. They needed a plan to have Jesus 
crucified, executed by the Sabbath, before the Sabbath. They needed a plan. Because the charge they had against Jesus was no charge at all. Pilate did not care. Rome did not care that Jesus claimed to be Messiah. That had nothing to do with Rome. In Rome's mind, it was just a religious, Jewish issue. That charge would not have stood in the court of Rome. So the Sanhedrin knew that. So they had to get together and they had to come up with a way to twist it just enough to say, oh, Jesus is claiming to be king. And that would have caught the ear of Rome. Because that's treason against Caesar. That's why Pilate keeps asking. The only thing Pilate's concerned about, are, are, you, are you claiming to be king? Are you going to usurp the throne of Caesar? Are you a threat to the throne of Caesar. That's all Pilate cared about. So the Jews had to come up with a way to twist it just enough to present this charge to Rome. Now, you, you, you look at this as a man, there's a lot of junk going on here, isn't there? There's a lot of religious hoops to jump through. A lot of junk. Anybody have a junk drawer at home? Anybody got a junk drawer? Yeah, man. Love the junk drawer. On my phone, my phone has become a digital junk drawer. There are apps on my phone that are on here that I've never used. And I look at them and say, I might need that later. There may come a time when I need that. And that's not true. I need to rid myself of all the junk on my phone. Let me me challenge us today to think this way. We need to rid ourselves of all the religious junk that pushes Jesus out. Because religion does that. Religion pushes Jesus out. And that's what the religious leaders said. They said, hey, away with him. Crucify him. Death to him. They condemned him to death. That is what religion does. It squeezes. It pushes Christ and grace out. And we see that happen here in verse 1. They bound Jesus. Why did they bind Jesus? They refused to rid themselves of the junk drawer of religion that replaced Jesus. So they needed Jesus out. They needed him away and done away with. So why did they bind him? Well, they bound him. You've heard the phrase, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. You've heard that before. They had power. They had power over the Jewish people. And they had them bound to legalism and religion. And Jesus comes along, and what Jesus is preaching is not tightening the bounds on the Jewish people. It's loosening the bounds on the Jewish people, and the religious elite don't like it. They don't like it. So they bind Jesus and led him away. Why did they lead him away? Because here's the problem. Jesus was a Messiah that didn't fit their mold of Messiah. They had a mold that they wanted Messiah to fit in. They wanted him to fit in the mold of being a militant Messiah, one who would overthrow Rome, one who would lead a political revolution and overthrow Rome. I've got news for all of us. Jesus has not come to overthrow Rome. He's come to overthrow Rome's sin He's come to overthrow your sin. He's come to overthrow my sin. That's why he's come. And religion squeezes that out and pushes that away. So they led him away. And then the Bible says they bound him, they led him away. They delivered him over to Pilate. 
What a powerful picture that is of Jesus as both Savior and substitute. That he, he was delivered over. And Jesus has come to deliver us from our sin. And yet he was handed over. Meaning he took the place of you and me and these Jews. And remember, he was a substitute for Barabbas. Even Barabbas. Savior and substitute. Religion squashes that. D.L. Moody said it like this. Your problem is you have a two-word religion. Look at what I do. I do. You do. We do. Look what we've done. Look what I've done. D.L. Moody went on to say the gospel is a four-word religion. Christ has already done. It's finished. It's complete in him. These religious leaders, their response to Jesus was motivated by their religion. It was a religiously motivated response, which says this. When God's doing something, say, God, we don't do it that way. Jesus, what are you doing? We don't do it that way. It's not the way we do this. You see what we're doing, and you come join us. You know, Blackaby's experiencing God. Anybody ever gone through experiencing God? One thing I learned from experiencing God, find out where God is moving. Find out what God is doing. Find out where God is moving and working and join him. Right? <laughs> yes, God's not going to join you. We're to join him. That's the gospel. That we even can join him as the gospel. God is not going to find out what you're doing and join you. Religion says, God, we're doing it this way. Come join us. And religion highlights our greatest enemy. It's self. It's all about self. It's self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, self-made, self-proclaimed, self-preservation, self, self, self. Church, we need to put self on the shelf and embrace this good news of the gospel. Listen, religion when, when you walk in a manner worthy of religion, you're walking in a manner worthy of intellectual knowledge, acceptable pedigree, cultural acceptance, good deeds, spiritual aptitude, worldly wokeness, dogmatic religiosity. That is not the gospel. It's not. An African chief approached the mission station. And next to the mission station was a missionary's tent where he was staying. And he had a, a mirror hanging from a tree. And the African chief, he looked into that mirror and he saw his own reflection and it terrified him. All the paint, it just, it just horrified him. And, and, and it startled him. He said, who is that ugly face in the tree? The missionary said, no, you don't understand. That, that glass is reflecting your own face. And she said, I want that glass. I got to have that glass. Name your price. I need that glass. He said, well, I really don't want to sell the glass, but to keep the peace, he said, okay. And so he sold it, and that chief took that glass and immediately threw it on the ground and smashed it and said, no longer will this glass be making ugly faces at me. <laughs> That's what happens when religion looks into the face of Jesus. That's what happens. Jesus looks into the soul of religion 
And when we're religious and legalistic and when we lift that up above the gospel and then we look into the face of Jesus, religion seeks to dash this mirror that's staring back and showing how ugly we really are in and of ourselves. And we nail Jesus to the tree thinking it will stop and that only magnifies the reflection of the ugliness of religion and legalism. Are you spending your time following Jesus with Jesus because you get to and because you want to or are you spending your time being religious because you feel like you have to don't respond to Jesus religiously second response we see in this text I've phrased it this way is your response to Jesus socially motivated Pilate is in a pickle right here okay He tries his best four different times to not follow through with crucifying Jesus. He does all he can do to not crucify Jesus. He doesn't want to crucify Jesus. He doesn't see any fault in him at all. But he's the governor. He's the prefect. And the prefect's role was simple. Collect taxes for Rome. Hold things together for Rome. Keep the peace. Whatever you do, placate, keep the peace. And so Pilate finds himself torn between knowing Jesus is innocent and trying to please the Jewish leaders in the crowd. That's a no-win situation. It's a no-win. And so he gives in to what society tells him. He ultimately gives in to the social pressure that he's feeling. He was a man who wanted the status. He wanted the celebrity status. He didn't like anything about the Jews. The Jews didn't like anything about him. And he didn't care to remedy that at all. And so here we find, the Bible says here, Jesus delivered to Pilate. But what we find is not so much Jesus standing before Pilate, but Pilate standing before Jesus. Because Jesus is the judge, amen? (laughs) And here he comes face to face with the truth. And we see what unfolds. He asked him the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, I am. I am a king, but not the kind of king you're thinking of. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate understood, well, he's no threat to Caesar at all. And then there's more accusations. And it tells us here in verse 3, they made many accusations, the chief priests did, against Jesus, including this. He doesn't pay taxes to Caesar. He's teaching Throughout all Judea, he's stirring up the people. He says he's a king. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Then they try blackmail with Pilate. And they say, hey, if you release Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. Caesar is our king, the Jews cried. Caesar, we have no king but Caesar. And then to his amazement, Pilate goes back and asks Jesus, are you not going to defend yourself? Now remember, Pilate was in the business of hearing people defend themselves. That's what Pilate did. He heard people give a defense of themselves all the time. So it's amazing to read at the end of verse 5. Look at this one more time. The end of verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was not amazed at the accusations against Jesus. Pilate was amazed at Jesus' kindness. Jesus' silence. That's what amazed him. Isn't that so amazing today? 
Isn't it interesting that in this social media world we live in, in our world today, period, that what surprises us is not people being rude to each other. It's not accusations. It's not people being mean. It's not people being cruel. What blows our socks off, what surprises us is when people are kind. Isn't that amazing? When acts of kindness are caught on, on camera and posted on social media, they get millions of views. It surprises everybody because that's so radical today to live that way. And Pilate's amazed at this one. For the first one ever who stood before Pilate and did not defend himself, the Bible says he opened not his mouth. Wow, Pilate it just says it right there. He's amazed. He's amazed. Church, we need to stop shaming one another. We need to stop giving in to society and social media and, and what our society says that we're to shame one another, that we're to cancel one another. We're not to give in to that. We're not to shame one another. We're not to be ashamed of one another. For example, for those of us who are worshiping online, thank you for being here and worshiping with us online. Thank you for being here and worshiping with us in person. For those of us in person, we need to not shame those who have yet to come back to worship in person. They're worshiping online. Let's not shame them for worshiping online because you're going to go home today and stream something you should not stream. So if you can do that, quit shaming people for streaming us and worshiping with us online. Amen. And for those at home worshiping online, stop shaming the folks that have come to worship in person. If you can go to that sporting event and make some noise for your earthly children, then certainly God's people can come in person and make some noise for our Heavenly Father. Amen? So let's just stop. Just, just stop shaming each other. We're not called to shame each other. We're not called to be ashamed of each other. We're called to no longer be ashamed of the gospel. That's what we're called to do, to be bold in our witness and not to give in to what society says we're to do or we're not to do. Let me say it like this. We have more in common. Church, listen. We have more in common with our brothers and sisters who are in Christ in Africa than we have in common with people who are in America, an atheist in America, who aligns with our political or social views. We have more in common with the person we've never met in Africa who is a believer and follower of Christ. Don't forget that. We need to stop throwing stones at each other. We need to stop and realize that, hey, there's, when we throw a stone, it may just very well be a boomerang. So cut that out. And let's start telling people about the one who rolls the stones. And here's Pilate found himself stuck here. What is he going to do? So he tries all kinds of things. He tries to send Jesus to King Herod. Herod, it's your jurisdiction. And Herod says, no, it's not. I find no fault in him. He sends him back. Pilate says, okay. He stands before Jesus and says, what is truth? He's standing face to face with truth. He has never been closer to truth than he was here. He'll never again be closer to truth than he is right here, some of you today are closer to truth than you've ever been. And you may never be this close again. 
Don't you dare do what Pilate did. Pilate turned his back on Jesus, and he went and asked the crowd. He went and asked the social media, what shall I do with Jesus? Don't do that. You're standing right here. You're seeing and hearing the truth. Bow your knee. Humble your heart. Give your life to Christ right now. Don't stop. Don't wait. Do it now. The Bible says, for there's coming a time when people will turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. That's what Pilate did here. He turned away from the very truth that could set him free when he asked the people, what shall I do with Jesus? What a question. So then he comes up, he remembers, hey, every Passover we release a prisoner. So this is how I can have my hands washed of this. Certainly they'll say, release to us Jesus. But no, they didn't. They said, release to us Barabbas. So then he tries washing his hands, right? He takes some water, washes his hands, wash the blood off my hands. And our sin is not washed away by water. It's only washed away by the blood of Jesus. And then he says, what shall I do with Jesus? They say crucify him. So then he says, okay, I'm going to have him beaten. I'll have him scourged. And then maybe that'll be enough. And they won't ask me to follow through with crucifixion. So we had him scourged, brought him back, and they said, crucify him. So last verse, 15, here's how Mark captures this moment. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You know, there are three names in the Apostles' Creed, Mary, Jesus, and Pontius Pilate. Born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Wow. Wow. Dr. Robert Smith said it like this, don't socialize the gospel. The, the social gospel is heresy. We are not called to socialize the gospel. We are called to gospelize the social. To take the gospel into every situation that we find ourselves in. William Booth was the general, they called him, of the Salvation Army. And in 1889, when they started, they were about salvation. They were about the gospel. They were about taking gospel preaching and gospel conversations. Today, they're more known for social services, but then it was the Salvation Army for a reason. These were saved men, women, boys, and girls telling unsaved men, women, boys, and girls about the Savior who saves. And they were persecuted for that. 670 of them were assaulted, many of them killed. Why? Because they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had boldness to do that. Church, we need to understand that the gospel is not something that's caught like a cold. It is something that must be told for anybody else to behold. We have to be bold in our witness. I wonder how many of us will go only so far with Jesus. And then we get that awkward moment, that leery silence, that sarcastic smile, and we stop and we don't go as far as the Holy Spirit would have us go. We need more biblical expositors and less social influencers. We need more gospel conversationalists and less gossip conservationists. What we need is we need God to peel back 
the curtain and let us just take a millisecond view into hell. I promise you, if God gave us just a glimpse into hell, we'd be set ablaze with the gospel. I'm telling you, we must be bold in our witness. Don't you give in on what society has to say about responding to Christ. Number three. This one's tough right here. I'm just going to tell you. Is your response to Jesus politically motivated? Do you respond to Jesus in a political manner? This is what the crowd does. Okay, this is really captured from verse 6 to verse 15. And, and it's, it's, it's all about politically motivated. Because remember, Israel wanted a Messiah who would lead a political revolution and overthrow Caesar overthrow Rome. That's what they wanted. And Barabbas seemed to be their guy. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus would not lead a political revolution at the urging of the people? He would not lead a political revolution to overthrow Rome, but now he faced charges for that very thing. Isn't that fascinating? And so they wanted a militant Messiah. And Jesus just wasn't it. He, he was, they looked at Jesus and said, he's so inactive. He's not doing anything. At least Barabbas is an activist. At least he's a part of the insurrection, a part of raising up against authority. At least he's a political activist. At least he's doing something. And so they cry out, give us Barabbas. Barabbas. To some, in a demented way, he was a patriot of Israel. Give us the patriot of our nation. Oh, they were so disappointed with Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? You ever been there? You ever expect him to act in a certain way and find that he would not just flow with the wind and waves that society and politics were flowing in? We want Jesus to ride in on that Republican elephant or Democrat donkey, and yet what he's riding in on is a humble colt. Who is this? What king rides in on a humble colt? Barabbas seems much more logical for a political revolution. Aren't you grateful that God's ways are higher than our ways? That his thoughts are higher than our thoughts? That the gospel says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. I'm grateful the church is not built on a political party or a particular president or personality or a social agenda or new legislation. I'm so thankful the church is built on Christ and Him crucified. And he's building his church. Let's be careful not to respond to Jesus in a political way. Being politically motivated. And miss the Christ. As the crowds did. Last one, number four. Is your response to Jesus biblically motivated? Oh, this is where we need to be. Here's the sweet spot. Is your response to Jesus biblically motivated? I was reading about a church this week that they identify as a progressive, 
Christianity is their theology, progressive Christianity. And this is what they posted about the Bible. They say they do not believe the Bible is the Word of God. They do not believe the Bible is an answer book. They do not believe the Bible is inerrant. They do not believe the Bible is infallible. I stand before you today and I say from Genesis to Revelation, I still believe the Bible is the Word of God. I still believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, I still believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I still believe that we're all sinners and all fallen short of the glory of God. I still believe that Jesus came to save us, his people, from their sins. I still believe that hell is real and heaven is far better. I still believe that sin is damning. God is holy. I still believe that what Jesus said is written in red. And he wrote all there is to read in the word of God. I still believe. I still believe. Here's the question in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Again, Pilate asked. What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What a question today to consider. What shall you do with the one they call the king of the Jews? What are you going to do with Jesus? Now, I'm not asking you what you're going to do with religion. I'm not asking you what you're going to do with social media. I'm not asking you what you're going to do with politics. I'm asking you what are you going to do with Jesus? Why, you say, well, why, why does God care? Why does God care what I do with Jesus? Why, why does God save Bible-ignoring, dead, walking, hell-deserving, sin-renaming, truth-denying sinners? Why? Because He loves us. Because His love is the greatest of all time. So maybe you're here today, either in person or online, and listen, you've tried responding to Jesus politically. It has not worked. You've tried responding to Jesus socially. It, it doesn't work. We hear that question, what is truth? And, and society tells us, well, it's what you, whatever you think it is. It may not, the same truth may not be true for you that it is for me. And for me, it may not be the same as for you. And that's what the world tells us. But here you're standing before the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> that he sets us free, that no longer will you be under the yoke of slavery to sin, but you can be set free. And the way you receive that is respond biblically to that truth. And I'm going to tell you how to do that in a minute. For the believers in the room, we say we want to be the hands and feet of Christ, right? Tomorrow, Monday, we have a truck coming in. We get to be the hands and feet of Christ. And we say we want to be, and we should be. Uh, our, our fathers, our, our, our church fathers, uh, coined the phrase, little Christ. We're, we're, we're imitators of Christ. We're little Christ. We're followers of Christ. And we want to be his hands and feet. But let us not forget what happened to his hands and to his feet. They were nailed to the cross, crucified. So when trouble comes, as we see here with all these different responses to Jesus, believers, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. Continue to respond biblically, not what the world says, not what 
politician says, not what religion says, but what Christ has said. And here's our takeaway that just sums up the message. I want you to take this home with you today. Jesus requires a response. Some of you have yet to respond to Christ, and that indecision is a decision. And you need to rectify that today. Jesus requires you to respond. Jesus is calling us to choose today. You're either for him or against him. He's ordering us to opt in or out. He's singling us out to work it out, whether or not you're in or out. He is summoning you and me to say, what say you? What are you going to do with Jesus? It's what he's calling us to do. Jesus requires a response. So, so here's your options, church. You can either abide in him or be apart from him. I said you, you can either belong to him or be gone from him. There's no in-between. Like here, you can be like the crowd and you can either crucify him or crown him. You, you can either follow him or fall away from him. You can either go for him or go from him. You can either have heaven with him or have hell without him. But he requires a response. You can either be an imitator of him or be an inmate of sin. You can either be juiced with a joy that only comes from Jesus or just be joyless without Jesus. But you have to respond. He requires a response. You can either live for Jesus or stop living because of a virus. You can either make much of him or mock him. You can be numbered with a number that no one can number to the glory of God, or you can nullify the grace of God. But you have to decide. You have to choose. He requires a response. You can either obey him who cares for widows and orphans, or you can disobey and be orphaned. But you have to decide. You can either pursue him or perish without him. You can either rejoice in him or be rejected by him. But he requires you to respond. Let this sink in. You can either seek him or sink without him. You can either enthrone him in your heart or be thrown by him into hell. You can either worship him on this earth to your last breath or you can worry yourself to death. But you're going to have to choose. Jesus requires a response. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're in the room.